So good evening, everybody. Glad to see everybody here tonight. As Chris said, I'm filling in for Kevin tonight. So we're going to be in the Didache chapter 7, talking about baptism tonight. Maybe his phone there too. Uh, you want his phone? Yeah, I think some shoes down here. Okay. Does everybody have a paper for the Didache? So, got some. Okay. So, so we got some. Got some coming. Got some coming. So I'll go and get started while while he's getting those. So tonight's chapter seven, talking about concerning baptism. And um, it's in four parts, and I'll just read it from the beginning to the end. It says, As for baptism, baptized in this way, having said all this beforehand, baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in running water. If you do not have running water, however, baptized in another kind of water. If you cannot do so in cold water, then do so in warm water. If you have neither, pour water on the head thrice in the name of the Father, and Son and Holy Spirit. Before the baptism, let the person baptizing and the person being baptized and others who are able fast. Tell the one being baptized to fast one to two days before. So that is the chapter 7 dedicated concerning baptism. As Kevin has said before, this is not Holy Scripture. This is just an early teaching of the church that dates back many years. So some of this, like the part... Part 1 does follow the scriptures. Part 2 through 4 is really an addition to the biblical tradition. And we can see as we go through this, there's a Jewish influence and a practical directions to this. So the first part, when it says baptize in this way, um, it follows the formula in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which follows exactly in Matthew 28, 19, which was the Great Commission, when Jesus says, go, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So in the Didache, they say that this is what you're supposed to say when you baptize somebody. We see that in the church day when, when Kevin baptizes people, he always says that. And um, then when you get to step two, it talks about the particulars of the water. Now, in Scripture, it doesn't talk about the different types of water to be baptized in. But it is a practical way, so there's nothing wrong with the Didache departing from Scripture in this way. And when it talks about running water, it is a Jewish influence um, with this because with the Jewish tradition, they called running water and living water kind of the same thing. And it goes back to the Leviticus cleansing rite in, Le in Leviticus 14, and then we see the same thing in the bath of purification in Leviticus 15 and also in Numbers 19. All those require running water to be cleansed. So you see somewhat of a Jewish tradition here. And, and as they go through this, it starts out with cool running water and then it goes all the way down to sprinkling over a person's head if you don't have that water. So what they're talking about here is the main point is to baptize in any water that you can. And it's giving you a descending list of most acceptable to least acceptable. So the best water to baptize in, clear running spring water. And it makes practical sense to me because if you don't have that, then you can pick warm water or non-moving water. Because I don't know about you, I don't want to be baptized in a mud hole. And that's kind of the, the descending order of the water. But it says you can. And he even goes down to what it says, if neither if neither of these options, then he says, pour water on the head thrice in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if you don't have any running water, or maybe you live in an area of Egypt, or maybe you're in prison, or maybe you're sick in bed, or maybe you're on your deathbed, where it's not possible to baptize someone, they say it is okay to sprinkle with water. But that is the least desirable option that he's listed here. And, um, and then the last part, it talks about baptizing, before the baptism, let the person baptizing and the person being baptized fast and pray. So there again, that is not essential in the scripture that you fast and pray before you baptize, 
But there again, it's, it's a good thing to do anyway, because usually after you're saved, and it's a couple of days before you're baptized, that is time well spent in fasting and prayer to understand what that baptism represents and to understand what your new walk in life will be in Christ. So there again, it departs from Scripture a little bit in the practicality and maybe Jewish tradition, but it still lines up with Scripture as a whole. And the, um, the study guide that came with this Didache, the, the author had talked about how this chapter 7 concerning baptism was not complete, that they would have taught much more than this to the candidate for baptism. So with that being said, I want to spend some time on baptism. It's such a key doctrine of the church, I thought it would be good to walk through so we can see what baptism is, what it represents, and the importance of baptism. And so that's why I'll spend most of the rest of the time is talking about baptism. If you've got your Bibles tonight, go to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 11 to give us some background verses. So Mark 1, verse 1 through 11. And it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So it's important to note that Jesus, when he began his ministry, he traveled from Nazareth to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Now this distance is 40 miles so he traveled 40 miles from Nazareth to be baptized by John to begin his ministry. He ended his earthly ministry by commanding baptism in the Great Commission to his disciples. So baptism was important to Jesus. He started his ministry and he ended his ministry. So I think it's important for us to understand what baptism is, if it meant that much to Jesus. So the term baptized is not a Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, or Catholic term. It's actually a Greek word, baptizo, which means dunk, dip, plunge, submerge, or immerse. It wasn't originally a religious word. It was a common word used in the Greek language. It could mean a ship was sunk in battle. It could mean someone drowned. It could mean that you dipped a cup in water to get a drink. So it just means to immerse is what it meant. And actually in your Bible, uh, Baptized is an untranslated word. So King James of England commissioned the translation of the scriptures into English in 1611. This is where we get our King James version of the Bible. The, um, for the New Testament, the scholars went back to the original Greek manuscripts. When they came to the word baptized, it created a problem because it literally means to immerse. Well, so instead of translating the word baptized, it was transliterated, which means just taken out of one language and put into another language. So they took it out of Greek and they put it in English. Why did they do this? Well, the reason they did this was the king at the time and his church practiced sprinkling. They didn't immerse anymore. They sprinkled. So if the scholars would have, would have translated that word baptismo, or baptized into immersion, then it would have been a problem for the king and his church. If they, would have, if they would have translated it to sprinkle, then anybody who understood Greek would have called out the error. So they had a conflict. So what did they do? 
They didn't translate it. They transliterated it, which at the time they thought problem solved. And we'll see that there's still a debate going on in the church whether you should be baptized by being immersed or baptized with sprinkling. And we'll get to that a little later. So I just thought that was an interesting fact back during the King James Bible translation days that this word gave them a problem. The first time the word baptized was used in the context of religion was with the Jewish culture. And the term baptized was used to describe a ceremonial washing that the Jewish people did. They either, they either uh, washed in a complete bath or they washed their hands in a cup for ceremonial washing. Another time baptized was used in the Jewish tradition was in a way that Gentiles could become Jewish. So if you was a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, then you went through a, a baptism ceremony to where you took a cleansing spiritual bath. Um, you also had to um, be circumcised if you was a man, eat a covenant meal, and then agree to obey Jewish law. So that's the two ways that baptism became connected to a religious act or rite was through the Jewish tradition. It wasn't a Christian word until John the Baptist came on the scene. So when you go back to Mark 1 where it talks about John the Baptist coming and being baptized, there had been 400 years of silence to where no prophets were heard, no scripture was written, anything until Jesus came on the scene. So in the meantime, before that, Isaiah 43, chapter 40, verse 3, was fulfilled when Isaiah said, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is when John the Baptist came on the scene. And we know in Mark chapter 1, he says he was baptizing in the wilderness, he was clothed in camel's hair, he wore a leather belt, he ate locusts, he ate honey. So this was a little bit of a wild man at this time. He lived in the wilderness, he ate like he was in the wilderness, and he dressed like he was from the wilderness. And then he was in this wilderness proclaiming this message, repentance and baptism. And so just the sight of John would have brought a lot of attention, and people came from a long way to see what was going on in the wilderness. But John's name came from what he was doing, not the way he appeared. Because his unique role of baptizing other people was something that had never been done before. So like I said before, baptize was a Jewish tradition of ceremonial washing or the Gentiles would take a ceremonial bath. But they would do that by themselves. Nobody would baptize them. So here is this John the Baptist in the wilderness proclaiming a message. It's been 400 years since the prophet's been heard and he's doing something unique. So... His, uh, his literal name was John the Baptizer. If you translate that to today's English, it's John the Dunker. So he's in the wilderness proclaiming this message, dunking people underwater. And people was like, what is going on out there? We've got to see what's going on. We've never seen this before. And so when they go out to see John the Baptist, and he's dunking people or baptizing people, then more and more people came, and he used that to preach his message of the coming Messiah. So, and it said that after that, so John took an ordinary word that meant to plunge or submerge and immerse, and he connected it to a specific task of baptizing, and that's how it became a Christian word in the New Testament, was from John the Baptist. So, um, what is the purpose of baptism? So, we know it was important to God because it was important to Jesus because he began his ministry with it. And he ended his earthly ministry talking about baptism. So what is the purpose of baptism? Well, number one is to fulfill the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, which I've already read about go and make disciples and baptize them. And so it's important to know that Jesus didn't request us to be baptized. He commanded us to be baptized. So we, as children of God, the first purpose of baptism is to be obedient to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said to be baptized. So we're baptized. Baptism is also a way of saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. I've been buried with him. His death has my name on it, and I've been raised with him. That's the other purpose of baptism. It's an outward expression of an inward decision to follow Christ. 
And baptism also shows equality and oneness among God's people. If you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 through 28. When I teach, I, I use a lot of Bible verses, so we'll be busy looking up scriptures tonight. So if you go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. And it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's no second class citizens in the church. We're all the same. Slave, free, Jew, male, female. And we're all baptized into one body of believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That's another purpose of baptism. For us to come from our separate ways, to come together in unity, to follow Jesus Christ, to be baptized in his death and resurrection, and be one body. And what's the purpose of that body? is to reach the world with, with the gospel of Christ. You go back to the Great Commission, right? Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've got a purpose. We've got that purpose. So that's the purpose of baptism. So another question would be is what does, what does some of the symbolism, what does baptize symbolize? What is this, the, the um, symbolism of baptism? Well, when a new believer is baptized, he or she goes down into the water because it means to immerse. So it's a picture of going down into a grave and being buried. Coming up out of the water is a picture of being raised with Christ and walking in newness of life. So baptism clearly pictures the death of your old life and the beginning of your new life in Christ. That is, that is the main symbolism of baptism. That's what we're doing. We're going down in the water and coming up. In Romans 6, um, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In Colossians 2, 12, it says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This symbolism that I'm bringing up will be important later on when I discuss the um, difference between immersion and sprinkling. So, and we'll probably come back to these, these verses then because there still is a debate going on in many Protestant churches today. Should you be immersed or should you be sprinkled? Or is either way okay? So we'll come back to that. And the other thing that baptism symbolizes that I don't think a lot of people realize is that baptism, when you're buried with Christ and you're raised in newness of life, it symbolizes victory in a Christian's life. Because it's victory over condemnation, it's victory over sin, and it's victory over death. I forget what the number was, but they, they did a poll. They do these polls ever so often. And they say, what is the biggest fear that people have? What do you think? Death. Death is the biggest fear. What you might be surprised at, they said, when they take this same poll in Christian churches, 60 to 70% are still afraid to die. They're still afraid to die. Because they don't quite understand what Christ has done for them. Or they might not just have that faith. They, they want to believe it but they're not ready to believe it. So for a born-again believer who has accepted Jesus Christ and went through with the bapt baptism, buried with him and raised again, that is a symbol. That is an anchor point in our life that we can say, I am born again, I am bought with a price, and I am secure. And I know one day when I die, it is not the end. I will be with Jesus again. And we see this in Romans 8, 1 through 2, chapter 1 and 2, it says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So not, no condemnation. We are forgiven. We are saved. 
we are washed clean. In 1 Corinthians 15, um, 54b through 57, and this is one of my favorite verses, it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That baptism ceremony is where we proclaim the victory of Jesus Christ. And we will be raised again at some point. And then Romans 8, verse 34 through 39 says, Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where you say amen. That is an amazing verse. And it talks about we are more than conquerors. We are victors. We are victors. We have won the battle. Christ has won the battle for us. And it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If Jesus loved us so much to go through what he did on that cross, I think he's going to love us enough to come back and get us and take us to where he is. So when you're baptized, when you're baptized one of those symbols is victory. Never forget that. It is victory. We have victory in Jesus. All right, so next question would be, who should be baptized? So the pattern in the New Testament is that only those who give a profession of faith should be baptized. And that's what most Baptists believe. The view is often called believer's baptism, since it holds that only those who themselves believe in Christ should be baptized. So a few verses we can look at is in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and that there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is talking about Pentecost. So the, word, the words to zone in on is received his word. So those who believed Peter's words. In Acts 8.12 it says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Again, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news. So they were believing. They were believing. Galatians 3.27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul here states that baptism is an outward sign of an inward regeneration. So they had put on Christ and was baptized. So the point of these verses is that baptism is appropriately given to those who have received the gospel and trusted Jesus with salvation. Here again, that's an important point when I'm going to talk about infant baptism later on too. Um, how it's, it's for believers in Christ. Um, another question that I know a lot of people ask is, how old should children be before they're baptized? And the simple question, the, the simple response is, when they're old enough to give a profession of faith and they understand the gospel and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, when they understand that, they're ready to be baptized. And some children get that earlier, some children get that later. Some adults get that way later, when they're in the 60s and 70s. But once you understand that, regardless of age, you're ready to be baptized once you understand that. Of course, with a child, you would always have a talk with the pastor to make sure you understand that. But as far as Christians and children, the moment you understand that you're a sinner and Christ died for you, then once you understand that, you're ready to be baptized. And that child, just like us adults, they start that lifelong journey to learn more and more and more about what Jesus had done for them. So, is baptism necessary for salvation? That's another question. 
So we recognize that Jesus commanded baptism in Matthew 28, 19, and also the apostles in Acts 2, 38. But we should not say that baptism is necessary for salvation because it's not. To say that baptism or any other action is necessary for salvation is to say that we are justified, it's, we're to say that we're not justified by faith alone, but by faith plus a certain work as the baptism. So the Apostle Paul would have opposed the idea that baptism is necessary for, us, necessary for salvation, just as he opposed a similar idea in his time when they said circumcision was necessary for salvation. And we see that, um, you guys go to Galatians chapter 5, because it, it's the same thing. It's, it's the same argument in a different time. In Paul's time, they were preaching, yes, you can become a Christian, but you've got to be circumcised. And Paul said, no, that's not right. And today, they're saying, yes, you can become a Christian, but you must be baptized. And that's not right. So in Galatians, we see Paul defending salvation by faith alone. It says in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 3, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So baptism for salvation today is just like circumcision in Paul's time. It is legalism, and it puts you back under the law. And we know if you go back under the law, you have to obey the whole law. Jesus died to set us free from the yoke of the law, and you can't follow legalism in Christ. They're two total opposites. So salvation, I mean, um, baptism is not, uh, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Another reason baptism is not necessary for salvation is justification for sins, forgiveness for sins, being born again happens at the moment you believe. It does happen two or, three later, two or three days later, a week later when you baptize. At the moment you believe, you are saved, you are sealed, and Christ paid for your sins. And we see that in the, um, in the, um, in the verse Luke 23, 42 through 43, with the thief on the cross. This is the clearest example of this. Because the thief said to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you would be with me in paradise. He didn't say, well, if you could come down from that cross and be baptized, you could be with me today in paradise. He said, and it's important when you look at the word he said, Jesus said, truly, write a check on it, it's guaranteed, it's going to happen. When he says truly, it's going to happen. When he says truly, truly, it's really, really, really going to happen. So he said, you will be with me today in paradise. So you are saved the moment you believe. You do not have to be baptized to be saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If baptism saves, it empties the power of the cross. And we can never do that. Salvation is for Christ alone. No works, nothing else. It's all about Christ. So when they talk about baptism, John talked about baptizing with water. Jesus talked about baptizing with the Holy Spirit. So what is baptism of the Holy Spirit? The first reference to the baptism of the Spirit comes from John the Baptist. In a prophecy found in all four Gospels, John compares his ministry to that of the Messiah to come in Matthew 3.11, where he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus didn't speak about baptism of the Holy Spirit until he was preparing to ascend to heaven in the later part of his ministry. In Acts 1, 4 through 5, when he tells his disciples, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's, that's when it's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. And the baptism of the Spirit is when the church began in Acts 2. And that is when the disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit and Peter preached at Pentecost. Because it said at Acts 2, 1 through 4, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the church, our church age, began when the disciples obeyed Christ and they stayed put until the baptism of the Holy Spirit came. And when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they had power and they could speak in other languages. And Peter stood up and preached Pentecost. And we see this in Acts 2, 37 through 41. And when he preached, it said, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. So everyone who repents and believes in the gospel of Christ will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Because in Romans 8:11 it says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I'm going to say that again so we don't miss that because this is important. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, lives in me, lives in every born-again believer. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. So what's important about that is that when we're born again, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is a promise from Jesus. We see it acted out in the disciples at Pentecost. Remember, these are the same men that when Jesus was crucified was locked behind doors. They were scared to death. These are the same people that Peter preached to at Pentecost in the same town of Jerusalem. That Holy Spirit gave him power, it gave him knowledge, it gave him courage. That same Spirit lives in each and every one of us. So if you're a born again believer, we have that same power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that can overcome this world, the power that can overcome sin, the power that can overcome everything. If we'll just believe, we can do this. And the more you believe, I believe, the more you open your heart and your life up to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which gives you more and more power. I think Christianity is one of those things in life. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. So we have to be willing by faith to trust it and to put, to bet our life on it. And the more you commit, the more power and knowledge and wisdom. And what is the purpose of all that? It's the Great Commission, to make disciples and tell other people about the power of Jesus and his grace and his love. That's what the whole point is. And that's what we get when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Any questions so far? All right, let's get into the, uh, the fun stuff. Immersion versus sprinkling. Should you be dunked like John the dunker or should you be sprinkled? Because John the sprinkler just doesn't even sound good. I like, I like John the dunker. John the baptizer. So baptism by immersion was originally practiced by all branches and sects of the early Christian church. Um, baptism by sprinkling or pouring initially began being used as a way to baptize the sick or bedridden. Baptism by immersion was always the preferred method. Baptism by sprinkling was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church in 1311 
after the um, Council of Ravenna. And it seems that after that, some Protestant churches followed their lead and they started sprinkling instead of immersion. Instead of, and we see that in, 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 in the same way with the King James Version. They were, they were practicing sprinkling at the time. I was trying to research to try to figure out why they would change from immersion to sprinkling. The only thing I can find, it comes down to convenience. It is easier to sprinkle than it is for immersion. And when I read a few, uh, a few um, articles, it talks about, and I believe this, that in the church today, people just don't want to get up in front of the church and be dunked in this water. And it could be that men don't want to put on the little white robes. It could mean that the women don't want to mess up their hair and their makeup. Because what happens when you're baptized? You invite your grandparents, your grandchildren, everybody comes to see you be baptized, and people just don't want to get dunked. So it seems like the only thing I can understand to why they changed it from immersion to sprinkling was that of convenience. And when you look back at Jesus' example, how far did Jesus travel to be baptized by John? 40 miles. It was that important to Jesus. If it's that important to Jesus, I'll get in the bath and get dunked in front of a bunch of people. So um, what's interesting is many of the founders and leaders of denominations that practice sprinkling today have in their writings acknowledged immersion is the original biblical method. And I'll give you some, um, some quotes. George Whitefield, who was a Methodist, commenting on Romans 6.4, It is certain that the words of our text is an allusion to the manner of baptism by immersion. So he acknowledged that it's by immersion. Um, Connie Bear and Howson, who were Episcopalians, commented on Romans 6.4, This passage cannot be understood unless it is understood that the primitive baptism was by immersion. And these people, you probably don't know who they are, I don't know who half of them are, but these were early leaders of the church back in time. These were the, the very earliest leaders in, in these churches. John Calvin, who was a Presbyterian, said, the very word baptize, however, signifies to immersion, and it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. Martin Luther, who was a Lutheran, I could wish that the baptized should be totally immersed according to the meaning of the word. And then Philip, Philip Schaeff, who was a Lutheran, immersion and not sprinkling was unquestionably the original normal form of baptism. This is shown by the meaning of the Greek word and the analogy of the baptism of John, which was performed in the Jordan. So these are early church fathers that in their writing said you should be completely submerged when you're baptized. So at some point in time, maybe 1311, when they followed the Roman Catholic lead, they changed that practice to sprinkling. And, um, but baptism is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. We can't forget that. And you can't, you can't picture that symbolism by just sprinkling water on a person's head. So you lose that symbolism when you do that. I go back to when you go underwater, you're placed in a liquid tomb, you're buried with him through baptism, and when you come out, you're resurrected. And the practice of baptism in the New Testament was carried out in only one way. The person being baptized was immersed or put completely underwater and brought back up again. That was the Christian tradition in the New Testament. And we see that in several verses. In John chapter 3, verse 23, it says, John was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there. Why did he pick that spot to be baptizing? Lots of water. So what do you need lots of water for? To dunk people, to immerse them under water. In Mark 1.10, it says, and this is talking about Jesus when he was baptized, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. You have to come, if you come out of the water, you had to go into the water. So Jesus was immersed. Acts 8, verse 38 through 39, he, and he commanded the chariot to stop. This is Philip and the eunuch. And they both went down into the water, 
Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. There again, the New Testament tradition is immersion. And then the question is, what is the gospel? Well, you can see an example of what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 4. It says, For I delivered to you as first importance. Now, this is Paul talking. So he says, I delivered to you as first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. That is the gospel. And Paul said, it is the first importance, this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you that I had received. Paul knew a lot. He was one of the, the, the greatest Pharisees there ever was. He was educated, he, he was traveled, and he said, this is the number one thing. So it's like, if you don't get anything else tonight, this is the number one thing. This is a first importance that I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to scriptures. What does that look like? Baptism. So every time someone is baptized, which is a perfect occasion to invite all your relatives that don't always come to church, that's a gospel presentation every time someone is baptized in the water because it, what it symbolizes and what they talk about. So that is a gospel presentation when we submit to baptism. So anybody know who, who Adrian Rogers is? He was, an, he was an older preacher. I think he died back in 84, something like that, Adrian Rogers. I read several of his books. He's, um, he's pretty good. And I've got this quote from his book entitled, what every Christian ought to know. And he's talking about um, immersion, water baptism by immersion. He says, if you were the devil and you could take any message out of the church, but only one, which one would you take out? What do y'all think? The one message, the gospel. If the devil could take anything out of the church, it would be the gospel. You wouldn't have to think about it. It says the devil doesn't care what you believe, as long as you don't believe in the gospel. What is the one ordinance that teaches the gospel over and over and over again? It's baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the, in the likeness of his resurrection. That's Romans 6, 4 through 5. The devil has done a slick job on some people to take this wonderful picture of the gospel out of many churches today. So I just thought that was interesting. Is, is that an attack on the church? That, that people, out of convenience, they say, hey, we're not going to immerse people anymore. We're just going to sprinkle. Because when they do do that, they are missing an opportunity to share the gospel message with other people. Because that's what baptism is all about. It's a symbolism of the gospel message. So, what about infant baptism? Is it okay to baptize an infant? Well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that baptism should be administered to infants, an act referred to as christening. The reason for this is that the Catholic Church believes that baptism is necessary for salvation and that the act of baptism itself causes regeneration. That's what they believe. And so that's the reason they recommend baptizing infants. It says a common view in many Protestant groups, especially Presbyterians and the Reformed churches, is baptism is rightly administered to all infant children of believing parents. So the Roman Catholics believe that the act of baptism um, regenerates and saves you. Uh, Protestant groups like the Presbyterians and Reformed Church, they believe it's okay to baptize a child as long as they're born to other believers. And so I found, the, I found a website, I did some research, and this is a quote from a Presbyterian website. And it says, Among Bible-believing Protestant Christians, debates about baptism often focus on the proper recipients of baptism. Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterians and Congregationalists confess 
that the proper recipients of baptism are believers and their children, while Baptists and many non-denominational Christians teach that baptism must be administered only to believers. Now, I just found that a little odd, that last sentence, where he says that Baptists and many non-denominational churches teach that baptism must be administered only to believers. So does that mean you don't have to be a believer to be baptized? And if you don't have to be a believer, what is the point of baptism? If it symbolizes you're connecting with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this view is sometimes known as the covenant agreement. And, um, and the word they use is pediobaptism, which just means the baptism of children or the baptism of infants, I should say. It says it's called a covenant agreement because it depends on seeing infants born to believers as part of the covenant community of God's people. So they're bringing these infants into the covenant community of God's people. And it says that they believe that the act of being born into a believing family is grounds to become part of the covenant community, whether you believe or not, according to this quote. This resembles what the Jewish believed about being born Jewish and how the act of circumcision granted him access to the Jewish community. But being born a Jew or baptized doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't. And we see that in God's Word um, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. And this is John the Baptist when he's baptizing. And Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to be baptized. And, um, and they thought that being born in a Jewish family was going to save them. And John tells them in Matthew 3, 9 through 10, he says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what John the Baptist is saying is, it's not enough to be born of Abraham and have Abraham as your father. It's not enough to be born a Jew. Uh, Paul explains that true faith is an inward change of the heart and not an outward act. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what Paul is saying is, even if you're circumcised, it doesn't mean you're right with God. It is a circumcision of the heart. It is, what is your heart like? It's all about the heart. So, baptism in the New Testament is a sign of being born again, being cleansed from sin, and beginning, and beginning a Christian life. It seems fitting to reserve the rite of baptism for those who actually profess and walk that, walk that out in their life. The only covenant community discussed in the church is the fellowship of the redeemed. That is the only covenant community. And... Um, Romans 6, 3 through 11, it says this. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus was baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that Jesus, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that is the good news. That is the gospel. Our repentance, our confessed faith, and our baptism declares we believe it and are committed to follow Jesus in newness of life. So in a nutshell, baptism was important to Jesus. He commanded it, so it should be important to us, and we ought to be obedient and be baptized. In the New Testament, it teaches that baptism is by immersion. So we should follow that tradition and follow that rule, and we should be immersed. And by doing that, we declare in front of God and everybody that we have been buried with him and that we have been raised with him, and we proclaim that we have victory and we are no longer condemned and sin has no hold on us. And we confess that in front of people. We, and we become one with the body of Christ. And what is the purpose of that? Is so that we can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit to give us power to go out and tell other people what we have. To tell other people what Christ has done for us. And we have to live lives, a victorious life. Too many Christians live defeated lives. They, um, tonight, I can tell you tonight that, that I was nervous to get up in front of the church. This is the first time that, well, the second time that I've been in front of a church. I didn't know how to use the mic. Had to, they had to show me how to use the mic. I was nervous. Why? I shouldn't be. Because if the Spirit lives in me, God's going to tell me what to say. God's going to take care of me. God's going to make this okay. And everybody else has to believe the same thing. We should be able to step out in faith and know that God is not going to put us in a situation that is too big for him. And we just have to have faith in that. And the more you step out in faith, the more that you buy in to this Christian experience, the more God is going to bless you with understanding and courage and the willingness to step out just one more step, just one more step. And that is how you change the world. Because it still amazes me that 2,000 years ago, one man who was God in the flesh had 12 disciples who were scared to death in a little dense like I am because it took them three and a half years to figure out what Jesus was talking about. And those 12 men, with the help of the Holy Spirit that we all are baptized into if you're a born-again believer, changed the world. And if you look at the world right now, it's not a good place, and it's getting worse. The world needs more baptized, indwelled, spiritual people that are willing to step out in faith and proclaim the gospel and tell people about Jesus Christ to change this world again. The world is a dark place, and it's getting darker. It needs light. We are called to be salt and light. And baptism, just like it was important for the dedicate authors to teach people about baptism. Today, I hope I, I showed you a little bit of what baptism is, what it represents, and what it can mean to you, and the power that we can get from that, so you too would be willing to step out in faith, get out of your comfort zone, it's okay, and love people enough to tell them about Jesus. Because if there's one thing I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, when I die, I'm going to heaven, no doubt. And another thing I believe, without a shadow of doubt, if there's somewhere in this, someone in this room that doesn't know Jesus, when they die, they're not. And we should love people enough not to let that happen. We should. As, as Christ Jesus loved us, we should love other people. This is how they will know that you are my disciples. You will have love for one another. And that's what we're called to be. So with that, that's all I've got on the Didache chapter 7 and baptism. Um, any questions, comments? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love you too, brother. Love you too. I grew up
I guess, I guess. Yeah, and I was always raised in a Baptist church, and you know, what we believed is you had an age of accountability. So if you're a two, three, four, five-year-old, something happens to you, you're going to heaven. So you have the age of accountability. Once you get to the point where you know right from wrong, then you've got a choice to make. So Kevin actually, Kevin actually did, did a lesson over that. It's been years and years ago. But I, what I remember bringing out, and, and he's never been against dedicating a child because I know there's been families that's brought their kids up and want their want their kids baptized and things just out of not not understanding right mm -hmm. dedicating a child and baptizing like Catholics do is kind of two different things yes right? I agree uh, because like Bob taught unless you're a believer what is the what is the symbolism and the symbolism is a change in your life well child hasn't even begun to live their life now, as far as a child dying before they have made a confession or whether they understand sin or not, that, that's totally up to God, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, where they stand before God. If they had a clear understanding of their sin, then I would say not at any, any age. I mean, teenage, you name mm -hmm. it. If I, if I know that I am wrong for what I do, then yep. I stand guilty, right? Yep, yep. But if I don't know, infants and whatever, I believe wholeheartedly they go to heaven. Right? Yeah. There was no choice. Yeah, because the, like, as an infant, yeah. you really haven't yeah. done anything. Yeah. And you can see examples of that through David. God took mm -hmm. David's first child, yeah. but David cried out, I will yep. see my child again one day, I know. Yep. God yep. didn't disagree with that. No. God allowed that to be wrote in his word. So we know Absolutely. that too. But it is out of pure obedience. It does not say, I agree 100%. The only thing that I, because I dealt with this on my own, I didn't get baptized as a believer until last year. And it started away on me. I was baptized earlier when I was 18 years old, but I did not have any change in my life. I knew I was not saved from that point on until I turned 33 years old. Well, in, in, in me, is, is teaching this the way I did, um, the, the view I was taking is, what is the purpose of that christening? If you were saying that that christened you into the community of believers, and just like with the Roman Catholics, if they're, if they're saying that, that that christening regenerates you and that is part of the, that saves you, my concern would be for people that don't understand that. And as they get older, they think, I'm good. I was christened when I was a baby. I'm covered. I'm good. Because I've witnessed to people, especially family members, and the hardest ones to witness to are the ones that says, I know God. The Bible says, if you just know God, you're good. Doesn't go to church, doesn't read the Bible, couldn't tell you two things about God. But he feels like, just because he knows there's a God out there, that he's saved. So to me, that's where baptism specifically comes in to where I believe you shouldn't be baptized unless you know that you know and you understand what this is about. And you just can't do that with babies and, and small children. So, but, yeah, but there's nothing wrong with dedicating babies. They still do that in the churches today, right. to dedicate babies, absolutely. And, and I really feel that dedication of a baby from, and say right here, that is two self-believing parents making a commitment. I'm going to raise this child yes. up in the obedience of God. Mm -hmm. and, and then when that child gets accountable age-wise, it is his responsibility to yes. Christ. Yes. Yes. And the other situation that I'm touch on, Chris said that uh, it might be that you're shaving. The word says that if you're ashamed of me in front of man, I will also be ashamed of you in front of my father. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. The scriptures for that likewise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I even talk about how to die on the cross to see. Yeah. Uh, he said in Hebrews 5, he went to, he's gone to heaven. So, so when, when Christ was crucified, he was crucified between two thieves. One thief was ridiculing him, saying, hey, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, save yourselves and save us too. 
And the other thief says, don't you realize who you're talking to? And I'm paraphrasing this. I'm not quoting scripture. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So at that point, he was professing faith in Jesus. Jesus, I know who you are. I'm not going to be like this other thief because I know who you are. You're the son of God. And when you go back to heaven to be with your father, remember me. So at that point, he was professing faith in Jesus Christ. And he believed who Jesus was. That's all you got to do to be saved is to really believe who Jesus is and what he came to do for you. So at that moment, that profession of faith, he was saved. He didn't have to be baptized. So when he died, he was in heaven with, with Jesus. They do. They do. Because there is a belief and there's a saving belief. So, see, that's what, that's what I was talking about, about my family member, where they think, well, I know who God is. I know there's a God in heaven. But Jesus said that we have to follow him. You have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So there, there is a head knowledge of who God is, and there's a heart knowledge of who God is. And just to know somebody doesn't mean that you know them and you follow them and you committed to follow them. So, so the demons, they know who God is, but they reject him. They don't want anything to do with him. They don't even love him. Exactly. It, it's, no, it's no different than you can have a person that has lived a rebellious, unchristian life their whole, whole life, and they could be 89 years old, 105 years old, you pick a number on a deathbed, and at that moment they can say, you know what, I was wrong. There really is a God, and I'm sorry. Jesus, will you forgive me? And at that moment he will forgive them. And that person on their deathbed will go to heaven. You have to ask for forgiveness. In, in, in God's word, it says, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's what, that's what the blood of Jesus does. It cleanses us from our, our, our unrighteousness if we will confess our sins to him. Yeah, good questions, good questions. God, yep, God is good. God, God still answers prayers. Yeah, d d different people mature differently. But you did make a good point because one thing we have to understand is there is no retirement age for Christians. You never retire. You never retire. God can always use you. you when you go back and look at, look at Abraham and his age and how God used him and different people through the Bible, don't be, don't, don't be uh, surprised if God knocks on your door when you're 88 years old and say, you want me to do what, God? He says, yeah, I do. So, yeah. Christians never retire. You're right. Always something to do. Well, we're running out of time, so uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for putting up with me. And I'll close this out in prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this night, Lord. Just this time to come together in your house, Lord, just to worship you because you are worthy, Lord. Just thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for loving us so much, Lord. Just a love that we'll never understand this side of heaven, Lord. And just thank you that, that you are there with us, that you walk with us, and that you will never leave or forsake us, Lord. And uh, just thank you for giving us a purpose in our life, Lord, that we too can share that love with other people so they can know you as we know you, Lord. And just that eternal security and that peace that we have, Lord, that, that are believers to know that you will always be there. And then when we do die someday, Lord, that it's just a passing over from one time to another. We're going to open our eyes, Lord, and we're going to see you face to face. Because as Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And just thank you for your gospel message, Lord. Just thank you for all that you do. Just forgive us where we fall short, Lord, and just uh, bring us back Sunday. And uh, we'll continue. We'll just be as one body together, Lord, just worshiping you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.